in you would glorify and magnify your name. Lord, open our eyes so we would see and hear Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. His wisdom, God has left us in the world. We've mentioned this from time to time in sermons. And, you know, why doesn't God just save us and take us on to glory? Well, the Lord uh, saves us, and indeed we are righteous and just in Christ. But then God is working in us that we would grow in holiness, even have a personal holiness wrought by God, the Spirit working in us, but nonetheless our own obedience. He doesn't take his people out of the world, but he has warned us as his children in the world to not be of the world. In the world, but not of the world. The scripture provides a clear record of what happens. There's a, a clear picture that is painted in the word of God of what happens when the church begins to live like the world. Um, we lose our saltiness, the savor. Uh, we uh, cease to grow, uh, glow brightly as light in the world. In our previous sermon last week, as we looked at the first chapter, we saw how the church can become distracted, discouraged, and disinterested. We saw how the remnant that came back out of Babylonia uh, neglected the things of God. They were focused on material things, their own needs, their own wants, their own desires, and they were neglecting the things of God. They, they lost their way. You know something to that. And the blessing each Lord's Day as we gather, we have our vision clarified, we refocus, uh, recalibrated as we uh, might say it. And so it was through Haggai, the people of God heard in that day, the word of God, as he called them back to seek him. We can say to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things would be added unto them. They were called to repent. We noted how when they repented, even in that first chapter, all this happens, that when they repented and began to seek the Lord, that God blessed their immediate obedience with great abundance. He provided the things that they need for this life. Remember that, uh, as I said last week, Haggai's ministry, it's, it's very short. It's four months. It's, it's remarkable. This prophecy has these very clear markers of time that go right throughout it. We don't find that uh, so much in other of the prophets, but it's very much here. We find that Haggai is a passionate, he's a tender prophet, and yet, as a prophet of God, there's times where he's very direct and to the point, which, of course, was necessary for us who are dull of hearing. This morning, we can consider the second chapter and see the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise See how God is able to take a few, a faithful few, and accomplish much. We'll see how God is able to take even an obscure man and exalt him, as our God foretells the coming of Jesus Christ from that line of Judah. We use four main points that are in there worship God, the coming glory, call to labor with clean hands and a pure heart, the blessings promised of the Lord for our holy labors in his kingdom, and the preservation and blessing even during a time of upheaval. That we feel something that today, don't we? Something of upheaval. God's able to bless and uphold us in such times. So begin with the coming glory, the first nine verses of this chapter. Verse one again gives us a time, and it's in the seventh month, on the twenty-first of the month, that the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, about one month after they begin to build, if you look back in the earlier chapter, uh, this just a very brief time. Here comes Haggai with the word of the Lord once again. 
and the temple is beginning to take some size and shape. It's becoming apparent. It's not just stones laid in, in the soil as a foundation, but indeed it's starting to come up. They can see the beginning. And God addresses his people. He goes on to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, who would be the high priest of the people. And then he says to the remnant of the people, because there are but a few that have come out of the land of captivity. Ezra and Nehemiah make that clear, even as there are... Uh, uh, censuses that are taken and you can see the number of those who have returned at uh, initially something less than a little less than 50,000 that have come back into the land and yet God speaks to them we find in verse 3 that God hears what the people are saying as they are building he says who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory and how do you see it now so there have been those old men Remember 70 years of captivity? Who would have been but lads, maybe 8, 9, 10, maybe in their teens that have gone into Babylon and now they've come back out. They're their 70s, their 80s, their 90s. And they behold what is being built at this time. And the Lord's mindful that they were sad uh, and weeping. And he says, you remember it. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, that is the former temple, is this not in your eyes as nothing? We have thoughts about things, don't we? we? We think about, well, this isn't much. And the Lord knows all our thoughts. And here we see that God demonstrate. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're saying as they're building, as they're going about it. And uh, there's a discouragement even that's upon them, a disappointment as they think of the former things. And indeed, Solomon's temple was glorious. Gold overlaid everything. Remember the, the, the bronze pillars that Solomon had built to set at the front of the temple to hold up the porch Above it, the massive bronze, the, the, the tubes were uh, a hand breadth thick, um, more than several men could reach about, and in a tremendous height. So that when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and overruns the land, there's this recounting. But the, the bronze pillars, when they were built and when they were carried away, it was, it was beyond measurement. It was such a sum, a, such a weight, such a grand and glorious place. These men remember all this. And they look at what they're building now, and they compare it, and it seems as nothing. And indeed, they were becoming discouraged. But God knows our frame. He understands how we become discouraged. He understands our weaknesses. He, he knows that we have a tendency to look back to the past. It's interesting, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, that wise as a man, says many things that are of use, but he says, don't talk about the good old days. We do that, don't we? Particularly those of us that have had a few decades of life, you know, maybe 40 or 50 or 60 or more. And you think back to former times, and what's our tendency? We forget how difficult it was. We forget the hardships. We remember the good things and the blessings. We talk about the good old days. We long for them. And you see, and that has something of a discontentment. You see that uh, this morning in my, my daily Bible reading in Numbers, that Israel is... Turn. God has turned them away from entering the land of promise because they've rebelled against them. They refused to go in. They said, oh, it's too difficult for us. And so these people come. We want to return to the land flowing with milk and honey. What is that land? It's Egypt. It's where they're in a house of bondage. It was where they were slaves. And, and yet it seems so attractive to them now. But God says, don't look to the past. Don't say that the old days were better. God calls us <coughs> to live today. We're to live this day. We can remember the past and celebrate those things that God has blessed us with and sometimes we have to remember the past and 
confessed sin and repented. One of the Psalms, David confesses, Lord, forgive me for the sins of my youth. And so it is, there's a place to remember the past. But we're not to live in the past. We're not to focus on the past because we do not do so well and indeed we are not wise. But God commands them, even as they're in this comparison, he's mindful that they're bears comparing. What does he say in the next verse? It's that reoccurring refrain that we see throughout the scripture to all three groups, the governor, the high priest, and the people. He says, be strong. And then he concludes with, do not fear. Be strong and do not fear. Be strong and courageous, we might say. Indeed, some are weak. We're often weak, are we not? We become discouraged. We get overwhelmed. But God wants us to focus our gaze upon him. You've heard it said, you know, we need to keep one eye fixed upon our sin and another fixed upon the cross. Or for every look uh, glance that you look at your sin, give two glances to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we need to keep things in perspective. And indeed, when we're discouraged or overwhelmed, we need to focus our gaze on God above. The great and glorious God, not the circumstances around us. It's a good word for the day in which we live even now. And so as God says to them, don't look at the building. Don't look at what you're building. It's not even built yet. Don't compare it. God wants them to look forward. He wants them to, as uh, one theologian has said, he wants them to listen to eternity. And what do we hear from eternity? Well, in John's Revelation, we, we hear something from those who have gone on, saints redeemed in the Lord, who are even now around the throne of God, worshiping the Lord our God. In a sense, we, we hear from eternity. They're in it. They're enjoying it. And what is it they say? Revelation 7.10 says, this is the refrain that they sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the word to think about. Discouragement seems things like our things are small and insufficient. I mean, there, there are many uh, faithful congregations, small congregations in New England, and it'd be easy to look to the past and remember when there were churches across New England that were vibrant and thriving and loving the Lord, and now we know that many of those churches don't exist anymore, and there are some who, in some pretense, go on, and that they're devoid of the gospel and devoid of the truth, and we can become discouraged, but listen to eternity. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. And so then God recounts his history. Their history for them. Verse 5. According to the word that I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. He says, remember. You were slaves. You were in the house of bondage. And I came with a strong and a mighty arm. And I struck that land. I humbled Egypt, the superpower of that day. I brought them down. I destroyed their gods. I humiliated their gods. And you went away and you plundered Egypt. You hauled off the spoils, as it were, the wages of all your labors for hundreds of years serving as slaves. I did that. God says, I did that. Remember, according to my word, it happened. But isn't it interesting? It says it's according to his word. We don't think of word being all that powerful, but by the word of God, all things were created in nothing. And God spoke, and these things happened. He says, Moses, do this. Extend your staff. Throw up dust. The various things that Moses did. And indeed, these great plagues fell upon him. God didn't send myriads of angels from the heavens to come and strike Egypt. And even when he struck down the firstborn, it was just one death angel that went throughout all the land struck down the first word. It's just the word of our God is mighty. He says, so, according to my word, 
that I covenanted with you. What is that covenant that God's referred to? Well, it's covenant made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God told Abraham that his descendants would go into Egypt and they would serve there. But then after 430 years, he would bring them out. God made a covenant. Think about how many people were born and died and buried in Egypt over 400 years. 30 years of time of blessing, 40 years of slavery. What a multitude. Had they become discouraged? Had they forgotten? Indeed, we, we find in the days of Moses, there's a, a, a crying out to God, Oh God, would you remember? But God had never forgotten. He remembered in his covenant with Abraham. And he came, and he sent Moses, and he went with Moses, and he delivered them. And so God says here in verse 5, Even so, my spirit remains among you. My spirit, who was with Moses, my spirit, who was with your fathers to bring you out of the land of captivity, my spirit remains with you. I'm with you. And brothers and sisters, that's true today. The Holy Spirit, the same spirit dwells in us. God has made a covenant with his people, and his arm is not short. Indeed, he fulfills that which he has promised. Thus he is called Lord. As you have it in your translations, all caps, L-O-R-D. I've explained to you before, the best way to understand that is, it's the covenant faithful Lord. That is the Lord and Master who is covenantly faithful. And that's what God's declaring to this remnant in the land through his prophet Haggai. He's never left them. He, he's never forsaken them. He doesn't say in verse 5, now I've returned to you. No, he says, my spirit remained. I've never left you. That's the promise that Jesus gives to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The unfolding of the new covenant, the fulfilling and expanding of the covenant of grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so it is for us. Don't look at your circumstances. Look to the God who is faithful to his covenant. He is great and mighty. Verse 5, as I noted a moment ago, says, do not fear. It's interesting you know how many times I said, do not be afraid. It said 54 times in the Old Testament and 20 in the New. Why is that? We're prone to be fearful. Sometimes you, we've heard this in John's Gospel where the way it's written in the Greek, we know that what Jesus is saying is stop being fearful. And more often than not, that's the way we need to understand it. Stop being fearful. Do not be afraid. God knows our weakness and our frame, even as he does these men, this remnant that is building the temple. Brother, sister, are you lacking confidence in God? Are your circumstances such that they're hard, they're harsh, perhaps it's financial, perhaps it's medical, perhaps it's even a discouragement, a frame of mind that you're dealing with? Do you lack confidence in God? Do you think he's forgotten or forsaken you? He can't. He won't. It's contrary to his nature. He is the covenant faithful Lord. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. So, pilgrim, stand up, look around, and start moving forward in the strength of the Lord. Remember how Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, Don Bunyan's great tale, when did Christian get into trouble? It's when he turned aside, or when he laid by the way, or when he lay down and took a rest instead of keep pressing on with his eyes fixed on the celestial city, the, the idea of the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. It's when he ceased to do that that 
Christian's journey uh, had great and terrible mishaps. Indeed, so it is for us. We must keep our eyes fixed upon God. Now, what we notice next in the text is that God announces what's going to happen in verses 6 through 9. God announces that he's going to shake the nations. Kingdoms will fall. In common language, a prophecy is the falling of sun, moon, and stars. Not to be taken literally, sun and moon and stars, as you remember the dreams that Joseph had, uh, family understood that in prophetic language that talked about the leaders. And in that case, it was you know, mother and father and the brothers. Those of the household, the covenant community of God at that time, were said to be sun, moon, and stars that bowed down and worshipped Joseph as uh, the governor of Egypt, which indeed came to pass. And so there's this language it's used, nations coming and going. Once more, in, G in, in God through the prophecies, it's just a little while. So often, you know, these prophecies take many hundreds of years to fulfill, and we think, well, it never happened in my lifetime, didn't happen in my father's lifetime, didn't happen in my grandfather's lifetime. But in God's great scheme of things, it, it is but a little while. It is but a little while till the Lord will come again. We, the church has been waiting some nearly 2,000 years. We're pretty close to about 2,000 years since he ascended. But in God's scheme of things, it is but a little while. That's what God is saying there. Once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they shall, shall come to desire all of all the nations. Who is this? See how that's like a title? They shall come to the desire of all the nations. Well, that is certainly uh, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of glory. This is an announcement of the coming of the Messiah. Here, this little book, uh, a ministry of a prophet, four months long, Haggai has been given a reminder from the Lord as he tells the people that the nations will find your Messiah to be desirable. Are any of us from the tribe of Abraham, have any of us descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the twelve? Uh, sons of Jacob. Uh, most of the church are, are Gentile peoples. He, he, he was the Messiah of Israel. He was born uh, as a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, and indeed David's greater son, and yet he's desirable to us. And indeed the nations of the earth, even now across the face of the globe, there are multitudes of believers who look to Christ, who came from Israel, and he's the desire of all the nations. It's in him that salvation is found. So God is saying that there's one more, there's one more stage in this progress to, salva uh, to salvation. He says, I'm going to shape things and the desire of all the nations will come and I will fill this temple, the one that they're building now that looks so small in their eyes when they consider what they before. He says, I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So we have is an unfolding um, steps or sequences moving to the great day of the Lord when Christ shall come. We have from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Abraham. We've covered those in the book of Genesis. We have from Abraham to Moses, whom God raises up, the book of Egypt that we hope to cover next. Moses then to, the, to Solomon's temple and then from Solomon's temple to captivity and then from the captivity to the coming of the Messiah. And that's where they're at. They're in that next step from the captivity, they come out of the captivity, some of them, there's still many in Babylon, but the Messiah is coming. And here the prophet Haggai announces the days of the king. 
when the glory of the King of Kings would fill the temple that they were building with an unsurpassable glory, something greater than gold and gemstones, something more majestic than massive bronze pillars. Indeed, the one who is coming surpasses all. And God says, I have all the resources in the world. This temple will exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. That doesn't seem inconceivable. And of course, what was their tendency to do? It's like ours, just to think of the physical, what they could see, what they could touch, you know, what would uh, uh, be brilliant and sparkling in their eyes. But God is speaking of something, indeed someone, much greater. Some took the temple itself to be the confidence of Israel. Their hope is in the temple. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is a prophet. He comes to the people of that day. That's their confidence. They're, they, they're hearing from the prophets. They've heard from Isaiah. They're, they're hearing from Jeremiah even that day that they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried away in captivity. And God says to them, do not trust in this that you say, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three times he's, 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 he's saying, he's mocking them. You're saying, we have the temple of God. Nothing will happen to us. It's impossible that anything should befall. And yet, it befell them. And their focus had been on the temple. And God is saying to these people, don't focus on the temporary. Focus on him who is eternal, the desire of all the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God has raised up. In a sense, God says, don't be concerned about the cost of the temple. Silver and gold, this is all mine. I'll provide what you need to build this temple. It doesn't really matter. Because I'm going to fill this temple with something more precious than all the gold of all the world. You think about that. Mere men, if we're just left as we are, mere men, if you on the one side you were able to assemble all the gold that is in all the world, that would be like a mountain. It'd be quite a pile of gold. It's, it's value and the current gold market is beyond my comprehension. And you want to say, I'll give you this where you can have this man, the son of Mary, born of a virgin, the God-man, smitten and afflicted of God. Who do you choose? What would it profit a man to, to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Indeed, it is in Christ that there is life. Life abundant and free. Christ is most glorious. Christ is exalted. And it was God that glorified himself and that he sent Christ. Now what happens is that this temple is built. It's a second temple. It's built upon. It's expanded, even as many times men will do. They build their first home, and as their wealth increases, they expand and expand it. Israel continued to expand it. So by the time that Christ is there, Herod's temple was quite a sight to behold. We are told by those who lived in that day that if you were approaching from the east, so you would be heading west, and the rising sun behind you striking the gold that covered the walls of Herod's temple... It was blinding. It was brilliant. It was a spectacle. It was glorious. But God's not talking about that. He's talking about the one who will walk in that temple, who will teach from the porches, who will address the people with the words of life. He's talking about God incarnate, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God come down. Indeed, the desire of all the nations. And what happens is, you know, this generation goes the way of all humanity, and their descendants are there when Jesus comes. And what do they esteem? The temple. 
They're offended. And even the disciples were offended or puzzled, at least, when he said, you know, tear down this temple. He says, I tell you, there's a time coming when not one stone will be left on top of the other. A uh, fulfillment of what happened when Babylon, uh, Babylon came in and conquered the land. It's, it's going to happen again. And indeed, it's never been rebuilt since. Solomon's temple was destroyed and lay in ruin for not quite 100 years before it began to be built. But Herod's temple has been gone 2,000 years for there. There's one that's much greater. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's one more day. We were talking about the sequence. There's one more. The coming of Messiah. The coming of the King. The end of the age. And Jesus announces that with his coming, he, he establishes what is the last day. The, the, the final days. We're in these last days, even now since the coming of Christ. We're in that last phase from the threshold of Christ until he comes again in triumph and majesty. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews 4, in verse 8, where he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he's talking about Joshua the leader, he would not have afterward spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from the works of as God did from his, as God did from his. He's talking about Christ who ceased and is set down at the right hand of the Father. But then he's going to come. And this is, the, we're in that threshold period where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we're longing for his coming. And when he comes, as the writer of Hebrews says, the preacher, we will enter into the saints' everlasting rest. And it will be consummation. It will be the fulfillment. It will be the completion. There will be no anticipation of some other great event in redemptive history for it will all be accomplished. And it is the desire of all the nations who accomplishes. It's the Lord of glory who will bring that to pass. So God tells this little remnant that what they're doing, though it's, it's small, it is. It's small and seemingly insignificant. Insignificant. And he says, be encouraged. Because the temple you're building... The second temple will play a mighty role. And so in verse 9, the tail end of it, the glory of the latter temple should be greater than the former, says the Lord. And in this place I will give peace. But then he says, he reminds me of who's speaking, I will give peace, says the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord of hosts. That's what he's going to accomplish in that temple. He will come with his peace. It's the gospel of peace. It's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 85, verse 8. I will hear what the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. That's what happened at the cross. When the, the greater one came, and when he was smitten and afflicted and it seemed all was lost, God's justice was satisfied, and God made peace with sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus he says, in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. This peace that is proclaimed here is retained by faith alone. These people, like us, 
They had to listen to God, hear the promises of God, and believe God. And like Abraham, their father, would count it unto them as righteousness. And even though so it is today that when we believe God, when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, believe on him, call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. That's the promise that he continues to make. And it is in Christ that righteousness and peace are kissed. Well, secondly, and more briefly, we will consider that we're called the call to labor with clean hands and a pure heart. We see that in verse 10. Now we're about two months later, the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, and we have then, and I'm going to come to it in a minute, we have this little uh, conversation about what's holy and how things are unholy. So the people are busy building. Two months have gone by. They're still engaged. They're moving forward. And God sends the prophet to do something like a catechism. It's like a Q&A that God comes and teaches the people. The foot carries holy meat in the fold of his garment. With the edge of it, he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food. Will it become holy? So the priest answered and said, no. The carrying of holy thing, touching something that's ordinary, does not make that item holy. Now, placing something on the altar did. But then Haggai says, um, is the one who is unclean because of a dead body, if he touches any of these, will it become unclean? And so the priest answered and shall say, you shall be unclean. So here you, Haggai is addressing the priests, the ones who are to be schooled in these things, and understand these things. And what's the lesson here? Uncleanness corrupts. It taints everything. The Nazarite, he could be well into the commitment of his vow. He might have been he vowed you know, two years, and he could be in the uh, one month from the end of it all, and, and then suddenly a, die, a dead body. Somebody dies right next to him. He comes up on a dead thing. has to shave his hair off and start all over again because he's unclean, because of death. Therefore, the message here is uncleanness. It's to be avoided at all costs. Avoid anything that would make you unclean, that you would become tainted. And of course, we understand as we live our lives today, the only way to do that is in the strength of Christ. So Haggai's message on this occasion addresses the need to do the work of God with clean hands and a pure heart. What are they building? They're building the temple. They're building a place where God will be worshipped. And you remember when Solomon was building, we're told that there was no sound of hammer on stone at the side of the temple. All the work, the noisy, dusty work was done somewhere else, and every stone was perfectly sized, brought, and set in its place, one after another, one upon another, as they built a temple. There was no sound of tool in the place, because they were building a temple to the Lord their God. It was a holy place, and they had the example of the building of the tabernacle, where God put his spirit in two men to govern and to direct and oversee all this work that had been done with great skill, because this was a holy place. And here, God, in this brief exchange is reminding them of that reality. They're building the temple. How much more so for us who are people. As we said last week, we are living stones, as Peter says. God is forming and fashioning to fit together, building a temple for himself that he will occupy and indwell. So Haggai's message is that we must do that work with clean hands and a pure heart. If not, it would be unacceptable to God. Matthew Henry says, God sees that are many among them that spoil this good work. And by going about it with unsanctified hearts and hands, they are likely to gain, uh, 
they are likely to gain any in, they are unlikely to gain any advantage to themselves by it. These are to hear and be convicted, and they are all warned, therefore, to purify their hands and to employ their work. For to the pure only all things are pure, and from the pure only comes what is pure. Haggai, word of God in Haggai is calling the people to do the work with clean hands. To do it with right motives. To do it as unto the Lord. Whereas uh, the writer Hebrews says that whatever is not done of faith is sin. And so they should labor with hearts committed to the Lord. Laboring unto the Lord. And what Haggai is doing is applying certain rules of the ceremonial law. There's a difference between what is clean and what is unclean. And here the Old Testament passage just shows us that even now, though the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ, the principle still abides. That there's a spiritual use from that that we can use today. It's not only a divine ritual for the Jews, but it also serves to instruct us in all righteousness. Not that we have to keep the ceremonial laws, but the principle, the spirit of it, the general equity of that even exists today, that we're to do our work from a whole heart, a heart wholly devoted to the Lord, committed to the Lord. And thus, as we come to worship, what's one of the first things we do? We hear the law of God. And then we confess our sins. And we're reminded... Christ, we're pointing to Christ, but indeed we're forgiven in Christ, we're set apart into Christ and afresh and anew, so that our worship would continue before the Lord, holy and unspoiled by that which is unclean. There's no change then in the gospel area of Hebrews, the, uh, the preacher there in Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. If your heart is unclean because of sin, then you are unclean. Your best works are rejected by God unless you have a great high priest. We understand that when we approach the table. Let a man examine himself. It's the same principle here. God's saying, examine yourself. If you're doing good work, you're doing holy work, you're building my temple, examine yourselves and see that your hearts are right before me. And God had provided a way that they could be made right. How much more so? We. So we're encouraged to examine ourselves as we come to the table, to draw near to God, that we would not eat and drink judgment to ourselves but indeed receive the blessing. We're covered in Christ with his blood. Sinner, saved by grace through faith, Christ alone sanctifies your works. Whether they're works in the corporate assembly and worship, they're sanctified by Christ, so that our worship is acceptable in the sight. We're reminded that as our elder was leading us earlier in the worship. But also let us be reminded there's no excuse to keep on sinning. Are we to sin so the grace may abound? Paul asked that question. And he's very swift to answer it. May it never be. We're not to presume upon the grace of God. David in Psalm 19 says, Lord, keep me from all presumptuous sins. We sin enough unintentionally. Let us not sin presumptuously. And John says in his first epistle that if one says that there's no sin, he has no sin. He's a liar. The truth is not in him. Indeed, as sinners, who's our hope? Well, it's this one who's the desire of all the nations. We come to him. He is our hope. Our confidence in his is in him alone. But thirdly, let us consider the blessing promised for holy labor. So in between chapter 1, we see that they begin the work and God's blessing the work. But now God's addressing them as they're going about the work. He says, do your work with clean hands and pure hearts. Seek me. Be of a right frame of heart as you do this work. And then God offers his promises in verse 15 through 19. 
calls another call comes to him. And now carefully consider from this day forward, for before stone was laid upon stone in the temple. Since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, and there were but ten. One came to a vat of wine to draw fifty baths, but there were only twenty. I struck you. Notice this God's doing it. I struck you with light and mildew and hail and your labors and your hands. And yet you did not return to me. In the earlier chapter, that was what we're saying. You know, you, you've laid aside and it's like you put money in a bag. It's like there's a hole in it. God says, I'm doing this to get your attention. How often do we ignore the things that the Lord uses in our life to get our attention? But here God is using it for their encouragement. He's just said you need to have right hearts to do this work. And he says, if your hearts are right, you will be accepted. Clean hands and a pure hearts, they come from above. It's the work of God. And God points out how it was in the past that when they had laid aside resources and they were gone. Some perhaps they were stolen, ruined by vermin, spoilage. God says, I did it. I blew it away. It's all mine to do with as I please. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is you forgot your place. I was reminding you. You thought you could rob me. But God said, no, that's Malachi 3.8. Will man rob God and be taken? It won't be taken account. No, God will take an account. God says, I've taken what was mine. Indeed, the 70 years of captivity should come to the right. Why was it 70 years? Because every seventh year, the year that the land was to have a Sabbath, Sabbath after Sabbath of land rest, was accumulated up until it was 70 years. God said, the land's mine. I've decided who gets what? Your tenants on my land, and you've not given my land the rest that I've required of you. And so it was 70 years that they were in captivity. I've taken what is mine. God says, even now, through blight and mildew, I've taken what is mine because you thought you could rub me. And again, turn your hearts back to me. Now we know God does not need our tithes and offerings. I was just again in Numbers, uh, no, I think it was in the Psalms, am I reading that? Uh, God says, you know, did I take the pleasure in the blood of goats and bulls? Do I drink blood? Do I eat flesh? God says, no. God's a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. He says, furthermore, all that is out there, it's all mine. The earth is mine. And if I was hungry, I wouldn't come to tell you. But what's required is that we draw near to God and approach him in worship as he has commanded. And so we come, um, not with little uh, livestock trailers behind our vehicles to bring livestock and worship, but we come bringing our tithes and our offerings, uh, bringing them as an expression of the heart. You think God needs that which we bring? He's able to sustain it, but he's appointed through our tithes and offering the work of the ministry we continue. But ultimately, God wants our heart. Even as he's saying to these people, he says to us, he wants our heart. And did he, will, he will have the heart of his people. The captivity proves that principle. If we would yield to God, he reigns therein. And we bring that which he's given to us. We bring out of the abundance that he's supplied. I've rarely spoken on tithes and offerings since I've been here. I don't know if that I've ever done it at all. But you have been most generous. God has been generous to this congregation through you as you recognize his generosity with you. And out of the abundance you have brought into the storehouse. And we as a small congregation have been blessed. The Lord has blessed and sustained him. But even now, and even every time, it's good for us to check the motives of our heart. Why do we do it? Let us not taint our gift because we give with a wrong heart. And so moving forward, then God says, March this day. 
Verse 15, from before stone was laid about stone and temple, and he recounts what is done to them. Verse 18, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is there still seed in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. God says, take a look. Consider these plants that are in your midst. These are, these are all plants of provision, uh, of health. We know that these olive oil, pomegranate, there's tremendous health benefits in these things. You know, drinking red wine. God says, notice this. These are also a means of trade and means of accumulating wealth. God says, note it right now. He says, I will bless you. I will bless you moving forward. It's a renewing of the covenant he made with him when he gave him the land of milk and honey. He says, follow my commandments. It's back to Mount Gerizim again. Follow my commandments. And I will pour out such an abundance on you that you cannot contain the whole of it. Does God have your whole heart? Does every corner, every crevice of your heart belong to the Lord? Are you able, with a sincerity, to say, Lord, search me. Try me. See if there's any unclean thing within me. It's a sober thing to do. I'm, I'm mindful of that myself as a sinner as well. Does God have your whole heart? Does he have your complete obedience? So consider our ways. So God said back in chapter 1, verse 6, you have so much and you bring in a little. You eat and you do not have enough. You drink and you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself and no one is warm. You earn wages and you put them in a bag with holes in it. In verse 9, you look for much, but indeed you came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house is in ruins. We're the house of God. Are we in ruins? Individually, are, are we unclean? Are we tainting the whole with our uncleanness? Remember, it was a sin of a one Achan that resulted in the armies of Israel being defeated at Ai. Now God took Achan out of their midst. They stoned him. He became a pile of rubble. Consider our ways. If your worldly goods, good, if your worldly goods are not blessed and are vanishing, it is often an indication that God is withholding his blessing from you because he does not have your heart. I may do it for other reasons, too. You may be doing it to strengthen your faith, to, to, to temper you, to try you, uh, to teach you to be uh, to keep closer to him. But indeed, sometimes the Lord strips away that which we worship so that we'll learn to worship him alone. So if, we, if God loves us, he will discipline us. He will chasten us as a father of love. But fourthly, Preservation and blessing during upheaval. The final verses then speaks of this abundance, of a greater abundance that comes. In verse 20, verse 20, God says, Again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Now that we're not told what month it is, it'd be the ninth month, which was the last month represented. So he came the 20th. First day of the 24th of the day, it's the same day. Verse 10, ninth month, 24th day. Again, the ninth month, 24th day. God comes and he tells Haggai to give a very specific message to a very specific man. He commands him to go to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. 
says, I will shake the heaven and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord. What is he talking about? God's going to shake things up. Things are going to be different for Israel. Israel will rise once more to be a nation. But God has something very specific in mind. A signet ring. A ring that is not missed. You know, it's, it's, it's the symbol of an authority. You know, the, the king will roar, wore a, a ring that was a seal that uh, documents would be validated and certified with the king's signet ring. It was very prominent. God says, that's what I'm going to do with you, Zerubbabel. I'm going to make you prominent. I'm setting my special attention upon you. You will not be missed nor forgotten. What we see here is God's electing grace and choosing Zerubbabel for distinction. It's not clear that all those that are in the line from David down to Jesus were of faith. We just don't know. But here God is speaking to Zerubbabel. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He's a descendant of David. And he's faithful in the eyes of the Lord. And here he is with just a, a little motley crew laboring away in the land, seeking to be faithful. God says, I see. You've been humble and steady, and I'm going to bless you. And if we go to Matthew 1, 12, where we have the descendant, the, the lineage of Jesus on Joseph's side of the house, which would have been his legal side of uh, and then in Luke 3.27, which would be Mary's side, which would be his genetic line from David, who do you find in both those spots? Zerubbabel. Jesus descends from Zerubbabel both through his mother, by the flesh, and legally, in the matter of national things and so forth, through his father. God kept his promise to Zerubbabel. He was the father of the king. If David said to my son, my lord, David worshipped the one who has come. Zerubbabel is going to have the son who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Zerubbabel is going to have a descendant, the son, the one who will fill this temple with the glory, the one who is known as the desire of all the nations. Here he is in an obscure little land with nobody's paying much attention here. They're, they're laboring away with little means and God's saying, I'm going to bless you. Our God is able to do great things with very little. That guy's a short book. That guy's a man very little known. Brief ministry, four months. Yet his work was vital in the recovery of the church. He only saw a small part of the fruit of his labors. Much more came later. The glory, days of glory of the temple came over 400 years later. And yet Haggai did not despise the day of small things. More importantly, God did not. Haggai, like Zerubbabel, was a humble and a faithful man, steady and obedient, and God blessed him according to his holy will. We have seen here the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping Lord. Let us not miss this. The faithfulness of our covenant-keeping Lord. God recounts that. That's who I am. I'm in a covenant. I'm keeping that covenant. You be faithful to walk and keep my covenant before me. We've heard how the Lord takes small, weak, humble, simple things and make great things out of them for His glory. Great and mighty is our God. Are any of us significant? Are any of us extraordinarily wise by the standards of man or God? Are any of us uh, of power and authority? We're, we're simple, humble people in obscurity, and yet God works with such as we are. He's faithful to his covenant. 
loves to take the simple and obscure and make great things of it. Jesus walked in that temple that Zerubbabel was involved in being the overseer in his building. Not only was Jesus descended from him, but Jesus walked in this very temple that this remnant was building. And when Jesus came, he filled it with a glory greater than silver and gold. Beloved child of God, what about you? Isn't it as small things? Um, in some cases, the small ones. Mothers do not despise the day of small things. It is with such as these that God brings glory to his name. Christian, perhaps everything you have seems but little. Just a few things, insignificant, limited abilities. Do not despise such things, for it is God who works for these things. He hasn't chosen the wise and the mighty. He's chosen the lowly, the simple, and the humble. Give all you have to the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him with your whole heart and from your whole heart. Remember, it was with just a few loaves and a couple of small fish that Jesus fed the multitudes twice. And it was also on a cruel Roman cross. The desire of all the nations was hung before heaven and earth, smitten and afflicted by God. There, when it seemed a tragedy, the greatest triumph ever won was brought to pass. Our God is a great God who does great and glorious things for his glory. Whatever seems weakness before men, God uses to accomplish great things. Jesus, from Nazareth, from Bethlehem, is the king of glory. Jesus is the desire of all nations. Is he your desire? Let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we thank you for this book of Haggai and the instruction that is in it. We thank you for these lessons and we pray that you would help us to be refreshed as we come to it in our reading, uh, that we would remember these things and rejoice. It's a little book with an often forgotten prophet who is yet faithful, but more greatly your faithfulness to Haggai and to Zerubbabel, that indeed you fulfilled the promises to him. You fulfilled the promises you made to that little remnant that was laboring to build a temple. Though they did not see it with their own eyes, Yet it was a reality that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God come in the flesh, walked in that temple and brought a glory to it that no man can give. And Father, we marvel that King of glory comes into our hearts with his glory and his mercy and his majesty. He is working in us, small, simple, obscure people accomplishes his great purposes. Lord, we marvel that we would be living stones that you are fashioning together into a great edifice, a temple incomprehensible that you, O oh God, dwell within now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.